Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Fifth this morning. We're excited that you're with us. We're in the middle of this series that we've been calling Stories Old and New. And throughout the summer, we have been both hearing stories out of the, the Old Testament, specifically through the Jesus Storybook Bible, so that we can hear those afresh. And we've had a season of hearing stories of what God's doing in our lives today in the here and now. Um, it's been good and it's been rich and it's drawing to a conclusion and I'll, I'll say for myself I'm actually sad that this sermon series is going to end. It's been really good to hear the stories that, of God's faithfulness in the past and God's faithfulness today. Um, but there is a bit of a challenge with hearing some of these familiar stories because they are so familiar if you've grown up in the church that there is a tendency where we can just kind of turn it off and think, oh, I know this or I remember this from the flannel graph or I taught this on flannel graph. Um, <laughs> And I want to invite you to not do that this morning, to listen afresh, to hear what God has to say, uh, and to hear what God is speaking to all of us this morning. So with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to my friend Paul. Daniel and the scary sleepover. Things were not looking good for God's people. They had been captured and taken far from home, and now they were slaves of the king of Babylon. But God had not left his people. He was with them, and he was looking after them. Daniel loved God and obeyed him. Now God made Daniel able to understand lots of difficult things, so it wasn't long before the king of Babylon noticed him. King Darius liked how clever Daniel was, so he made Daniel his most important helper of all and put him in charge of lots of other helpers. But the other helpers didn't like this. They wanted the king to like them best. They wanted to get rid of Daniel, so they spied on Daniel. They tried to find things wrong with Daniel, things they could tell the king, things they could... But there weren't any. None. They couldn't find anything at all. Except there was just the one thing. Every day, three times a day, without fail, no matter what, Daniel went to his room, closed the door, and prayed. They smiled to themselves. Let's get the king to make a law. No one is allowed to pray to anyone except to the king. Daniel won't obey this law, and he will be punished. They were pleased with themselves for being so clever and hurried off to tell the king. The king liked their idea. He didn't know they were tricking him, so he made it into a law. Everyone must pray only to me if you don't. The lions will have you for their dinner. Daniel heard this. He knew it was wrong to pray to anyone except God. He had to do what God said, whatever it cost him, even if it meant he would die. So Daniel went to his room, closed the door, and prayed. That's just what the bad men knew Daniel would do. They skipped straight off to the king. Oh, your most glittering highness, 
Your law says, does it not, that everyone must pray to you alone, sire? Yes, said the king. Oh, magisterial brightness, then correct us if we're wrong, but it would seem that Daniel is praying to God, not to you. The king was sad. He had been tricked. He didn't want to hurt Daniel, but he couldn't change his law, and so he let the soldiers throw Daniel to the lions. May your God, who you love so much, rescue you, the king said. The king went back to his palace, but he didn't sleep that night. Not a wink. He tossed and turned until finally at the first glimmer of dawn, he leaped out of bed and ran straight to the den. Daniel, he cried, has your God rescued you? Yes, Daniel shouted. God sent an angel to close the lion's mouth. And there, resting his head on Daniel's lap, was the biggest lion purring like a little kitten. The king brought Daniel out of the den. Look, he said, Daniel doesn't even have a scratch. The king made a new law. Daniel's God is the true God, the God who rescues. Pray to him instead. God would keep on rescuing his people, and the time was coming when God would send another brave hero, like Daniel, who would love God and do what God said, whatever it cost him, even if it meant he would die. And together, they would pull off the greatest rescue the world has ever known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you are present in this moment, that as we gather uh, to sing songs and to worship and to connect with others, that you are in the midst of all of those interactions. We, we, we celebrate that in the midst of a life of our lives that are often broken and fragmented and hurting, that your move is continually towards us, towards reunification and restoration of ourselves to you, of ourselves to ourselves and to each other. Speak to us in this moment. May you have a word for us. May you encourage us and challenge us and give us what it is we need to hear this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you want to be for? What do you want to be for? When I, was, uh, when I was 18 and I graduated high school, some, someone gave me a copy of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, it was an old book at the time. It has since gotten older. Um, and I remember they gave it to me and I, in appropriate high school fashion, I believe literally rolled my eyes and thought, what am I going to do with this thing? Um, and for some reason, I held on to it. Uh, it went with me to college, never read it. Uh, it went with me to grad school. Never read it. Uh, I didn't have a big place in New York. I kept having to like ship books home, but for some reason that sat on the list of, I should read that someday. 
Somehow I picked up a second copy of a book I've never read. I still have two. I don't know where the second one came from. And I was always kind of unsure what to do with this book. At this stage, I'd heard a lot of what had been talked about in it. It's a pillar of leadership things. Like this is, I was familiar with it. And so why read it? I know most of it. Um, And then I heard someone talk about one of his points, which is, he says, you should begin with the end in mind. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that, right? That's the, if you start something, you should figure out how you want it to end at the end of the day so you can know if you've succeeded, right? So if you're trying to build a car, you should know what you want the car to look like or do so that when you get to the end, you can go, hey, I got a car, right? That's what I thought it meant. And then I heard someone unpack it and they said, you should really, have you read the book? And I did the thing I just did here, like, no, I have it. I have two. I don't know why I have two. Um, but, I, and then he said, go, go read that point. And what Covey actually says is when he talks about begin with the end in mind, he really is saying, picture your funeral. It has been the end of your life. It has been long and it has been full and it has been good. Your friends come up and they come up to say some things about you. Let's say they can each say one word. What are the things they say? How then, he asks, do you structure a way so that you live a life that begins with the end, that we will all die, that things will wrap up and conclude? How do we live a life in such a way that's geared towards that ultimate reality? That there will be an end to this physical life and we will go on. Daniel, as we, as we talk about this and as we look at it, Daniel had a, seems to be the kind of man to me that knows what's going on. He has the end in mind throughout the whole thing and he makes decisions and choices throughout the, throughout the book and throughout the story that shows he has clear values and character that matter to him. And that, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today is what, what does that look like? What do you ultimately want to be for? What do you want to be known for? And how do we structure life along those lines? To understand Daniel... Really, though, to get the context of it, not just pull out the story, we actually need to, we need to understand fundamentally, we need to understand how empire works in order to get how Daniel works. And in order to understand empire, we actually need to do a little bit of work in history just to understand what's going on. See, historically, we're going to actually start back a couple hundred years. Uh, God's people were living in Egypt as slaves. There's a, there's a man named Moses who gets called by God to lead his people to freedom. He leads them across the Red Sea. Most of us have heard this story. He leads them across the Red Sea. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They finally settle into the land that God's promised them where life will be good, a land flowing with milk and honey, which means supply and sustenance. They do that for a couple hundred years. They build clans and families and groupings and tribes. And then at some stage they go, we want a king. We want a king. We want to be like everyone else. We want to be big and powerful. We want a king. So God goes, fine. All right, I'll give you a king. King's not the best king. The second king is King David. He's better, but still flawed. They have kings. And over time, they decide that the king, the weight of having a kingdom is actually too burdensome. They don't like that anymore. So then they split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And that works for a while. But the problem of being a smaller country is the tax burden may be less or the expectations are less. But at the same time, you're more easily invaded. So the the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, gets invaded by the Assyrians and they get carted off. And then the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, they get invaded and they get carted off. And that's where Daniel comes from. 
See, empires, uh, and they were invaded by the Babylonians, by Babylon. And the way empires work and spread is that they would go and they would invade weaker and smaller countries. That was the idea. And you went in not to just prove that you were stronger, but you went and you took their stuff, right? It's the reason the Colosseum exists, because Rome invaded Israel back in the day and took all the things out of the temple, sold it, and got enough money to build the Colosseum. That's why the Colosseum exists, is because of empire and conquering. So the Babylonians would go in and they would conquer and they were pretty good at this. They built a good-sized empire and they would go and they would invade and they would kill a bunch of people. They would destroy gates, destroy cities. They would take things of value with them and they would take especially skilled tradesmen. They would take effective bureaucrats somewhere in the middle. They didn't take the top. They didn't take the bottom. And they took kids. They took a lot of kids. And the reason why they would take kids is they would often take kids, normally boys, though not always boys, between the ages of like four and ten-ish, before puberty certainly, and they would take you and take you from your parents, and then they would take you in and try to make you Babylonian, right? They would make you part of the empire, and that's what's happening with Daniel. Daniel's a kid that's been separated from his mom and dad, assuming they're alive. They've been separated from from his mom and his dad. And they go into this process of trying to make them Babylonian. And the book itself is really just a series of many ways of stories and reflections and interactions of how Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, live in Babylon and live under Babylon. And this story, I think, is oddly pertinent for most of us because to live in today's society, to live in North America... To live in the world today, to some degree, means we live in some form of Babylon. Babylon, not in the old country that has failed to exist for several hundred years, but Babylon in the sense that there is a worldview that tries to take us and form us to its image of what life should be, that tells us what success is, that is trying to make us into its image, that goes through the process of what Daniel does. And sometimes that Babylon can feel foreign and oppressive and big and scary. And sometimes that Babylon lives within our own hearts and kind of slowly creeps in from the margins and says, this is how life is supposed to be. The the tale that we get out of Daniel is really and and fundamentally about two postures in regards to Babylon. And, And our understandings and interactions of Babylon can really vary based on your perspective and what you have been through in life. Because all of our Babylons are a little different. So we're going to unpack those two postures. One of those is laid out by, by Daniel, and the other is laid out by King Darius, as, as Paul read in that, in that great telling. Right? Daniel offers, in many ways, Daniel offers this posture of resistance that is based around his deeply held values. Daniel is not in rebellion. Daniel was brought in as a little kid. He is a full-grown adult at this stage. Daniel is not trying to tear down Babylon. Daniel is not trying to lead an insurrection against Babylon. Daniel has found some deeply held values and things that are core to his personality and identity. And he finds areas that he cannot bend and flex on. Values are, I think, an interesting thing to talk about. And we should, we should explain what, what I mean by that and what we mean by that. We often talk about values 
uh, in, a, in a positive or an affirmative light. Values are aspirational things. They are the things we want to be about. If I gave you one of the big whiteboard sticky notes that you put on a piece of paper that's like this big by this big and a Sharpie marker and said, write about the things you want to be about, the positive things you want to be about, you could probably fill up most of that, right? We want to be about justice and we want to be about freedom and apple pie and, you know, like we just can list and list and list and list and list. The problem with that is is really twofold. It's not the most helpful tool because we can list tons of stuff and it doesn't help us understand what really matters to us. Um, And it's just not overly effective. It just ends up into this brain dump of all these things that we think are good. If we want to know what we fundamentally value and what a value is, it's more around values are the things are not the things we want to be. Values are the things we are willing to suffer for, if that makes sense. Values are the things that when push comes to shove, if you take a hit for it socially, in school, if, you take a, if it costs you money or relationships, it doesn't matter because something matters deeply more. Values are the things that you look at and you go, I'll pay that price. That is no problem. I will do that. It's the thing that parents have about kids. When you look at something in your kid and your kid is hurting or your kid's in fear or your kid's in danger, it is that gut impulse that happens within a number of us where you go like, I'll take that hit for my kid. I'll sign me up. No problem. We were uh, in the strata process last weekend. Uh, and so it's, it was two days and we're talking uh, and Tom Clegg was facilitating and we were all discussing. And we were talking a bit about values. Uh, and Tom threw out this hypothetical and he was talking with Jana and I asked her if I can share this story. And so he said, all right, so picture two tall buildings in Grand Rapids. And there's, let's say it's a four inches deep by eight inches wide board between the two and say it's 50 feet wide between two tall buildings. And there's something you really want in the middle. Are you going to go get it? Jana goes, no, no, there's no way. I'm not doing that. Who would do that? That's dumb. I'm not going to walk across a 20-story, eight-foot-wide thing to go get something. No, never. And he goes, okay. You have a grandson, right? She goes, yeah. What's his name? Landon. Okay. So Landon's in the middle of, I would be there in a heartbeat. We found a value. Jana had no hesitation. She would move immediately. Because Janet cares about kids and Janet cares about her grandkid. Janet would suffer. Janet would toss away fear because there's things that are worth way, way more. And her kid and her grandkid are in that category. Values are the things that we're willing to take a hit for, that we're willing to be afraid for, that we're willing to enter into new territory for. And Daniel's resistance is born out of this sense of value. He knows who God is. He knows that God has made him for a purpose and that he's made in God's image. He knows that he's God's kid. And that is so fundamental to his identity. It's, it's, it's not a, a passing thing. His resistance isn't born in a minute, but it is a deep-seated cho- choice that he makes again and again. And we can see this throughout the book, right? In chapter 1, actually in the very beginning of Daniel, he and his three friends uh, are, are taken off and they're supposed to be there on the becoming Babylonian management growth track thing, right? And so they're supposed to be given special food and a special diet, but that goes against, it's not kosher. It goes against who he is as a Jew, as a believer, as a person. He can't do it. So he goes and he says, like, well, let's see if we don't get sick. And if we don't get sick, then 
uh, then we're okay. And if not, then we'll figure it out. And they don't get sick. And it shows up later again with his friend, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where, where a similar scenario with the lions plays out. And there's an idol that's created. And idols are deceptive, but an idol is just the thing that we trust the most. And so they build an idol and they say everyone has to bow down to it. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we can't, we can't do that. Right? We have a value around who we are and who God is. We can't just stick you in there. I'm sorry, king, it doesn't work that way. And he goes, all right, we're going to throw you in the furnace. And they go, well, we think our God will save us. And even if he doesn't, we'll take the hit. And they get thrown in. Nothing happens. They come out. Everyone's terrified. And they leave him alone for a while. Then Daniel 6 comes, and the same scenario plays out with Daniel again this time, right? But it's the, it's now it's being thrown in with the lions. And there are things in Daniel's life as he lives in a world that is trying to tell him explicitly what he may and may not do, who he can and cannot be. And Daniel knows what doesn't matter and knows deep in his heart what does, who he is, and what he is for. In contrast to that, then, it's King Darius. King Darius... Uh, is really an empathetic guy when you read the story. He wants to do good. He wants to be right. He wants to be like Daniel in a lot of ways, but he can't. Darius demonstrates a posture of acceptance based around his lack of values, right? Darius gets tricked. He gets cajoled. The empire, which he is the head of, is kind of moving him in directions that he doesn't want to, but he doesn't know how to say no. You know, he, he doesn't want this outcome, but he's unable to do anything about it. And I think if we talk about today in many parts of our world, that's kind of the reality that we have. Sometimes we think of Babylon, and sometimes it's an invading foreign force, or it's the, the, those people over there. But for many of us that find ourselves in this room, we are often educated. We have resources. Babylon is kind of part of something that's bled in around the margins of our lives. And resistance to Babylon involves saying no to things that we don't always want to because other parts of it feel good. Or historically, we have this understanding that laws just are the way that they are. That's how it is. That's what Christians have and people have used to justify horrible actions for years. It's the reasons why we, we said slavery was okay. Well, it's, it's the law. It's the way that it is. There's an Old Testament theologian in his commentary on Daniel, S. Sibley Toner, who says, when unjust or wrong human law and human practice can, al- practice can always be changed, though it may seem more dangerous to admit the fact than to risk the consequence of refusing to change. What it means to live in a world that continually and structurally is trying to shape us and force us into a way to be is that we have to figure out, do we have values that we are able to stand on to resist the things that we need to resist? We're not called to be monks and go hide out in the desert. We're not called to run away. You are called, I am called to this place and to these relationships. And the challenge is, is how do we engage in the world around us appropriately and to stand for the things that we need to stand for? I want to end, really, with, with two primary questions uh, and a little bit of a challenge. What are the things 
that are, are a value for you? What things in your life are a values? What are you willing to suffer for? What do you want to be for? And I ask, I ask this because, frankly, I think most of us probably don't know. I ask because I've had people ask me those questions and I can give the positive affirmations and I can give those all day long. I can fill up sheet after sheet of the things I want to be about and I want to be for. But if we start talking about the things I'm actually willing to suffer for or to sacrifice for, I think that's a harder thing. And I think it's a question that doesn't actually get asked that often. At the end of your life, when people stand up and say, here's my friend, He, she was this to me. What are those words to you? If there was three to five of the things that are essential to who you are that you want to be for, what are they? That's question number one. Question number two is actually a follow-up. And it was originally one question and a challenge and uh, someone said I should have two questions. And that second question is, Are the things you value actually the right things? We like to pretend and talk as if we're in a place that doesn't have idols. We don't talk about, we don't have big physical gods that we build out of things, but we do have a lot of things that demonstrate clearly to us what is the most important. And in today's society, in the world we find ourselves, the biggest idols that dominate our landscape are comfort, convenience, and security. If we talk about the things that we put our trust in, the things that we we value, we tend to value comfort, convenience, and security. And I want to end with a challenge. And it comes out of Romans 12. And it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's a temptation often, I think, in in our world and society that that we just want to poo-poo and and put down things, that we just want to say the problems and flaws of the worldview or the structures or whatever's around. It's easy to be negative and poke holes in something. And at the same time, what God calls us to is not just to dismantle, but to create. As as Michelangelo, the, the artist, sculptor, and painter who made the Sistine Chapel, who made David, who made all these things, he said, we critique by creating. We resist Babylon by creating. It's not that we just oppose the forces of the world. It's not that we say that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. It is that we create the world in which we want to live. We create the system that we want to live. We create the dynamics and the relationships that we want to live. We want uh, justice, so we work for justice. We want uh, harmony and acceptance where everyone understands that they are made in God's image, so we work towards that. We want to uh, 
be a place where refugees and those who are hurt and wounded are accepted and have a place to go. So we engage in that. We want to be people where everyone can hear about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And so we participate in things like City Fest. We want to be a place where you come and bring neighbors and pies and hospitality to those who are nearby because that's what we think the kingdom of heaven is like. Daniel is ultimately about this form of resistance by understanding that our citizenship is not bound up in this world, not bound in what we live, what our skin color is or how we function, but is bound in our collective relationship that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King, the one who looks over us and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, and you I am well pleased, and then encourages us to go and create So my friends, in the midst of wherever you find yourself, what do you value? And what do you want to be for? And in all of that, whether that's how you treat someone at school or what you want to be someday or how you talk to the coworker that drives you nuts. No. I was not looking at Jana Coy. <laughs> Though she's right there in case you want to. My friends, the call of God is to know what has been placed in your heart. What are those things that you say, I will take the hit for that, for them, happily, all day, every day. And how do we live a life that comes out of that and creates the world in which we want to live? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day celebrating. Some of us come from far away. Some of us come having spent our whole lives in this place. Some of us have been in this room since we were in the womb. But we come to be transformed. We come to hear you, to meet you, and to leave different. We do not do that in our own strength. It's not something we muster. It's not something that we will to make happen. But we pray for your power, and we pray for your grace for when we do not do what we know we should. God, may our identity be found as your children, whom you look over, not with words of condemnation, but with words of acceptance and grace for who we are. And may you call us to stand for the things that matter, to engage our city, to fight against homelessness, to fight against injustice, to share your good news of that there is hope that is found in knowing that you are Heavenly Father. We do not do this alone and we do not, we we do this after generations who have come before us. But God, today in this place, help us find and know our values and help us live a life that reflects those. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.